Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor LeCain. Today, we're going to talk about money. Money can be a tool of oppression, a way to divide people into haves and have-nots, or money can be a tool of healing, a way to bring people together and restore balance. So says our guest today, who has thought deeply about how money can heal. Edgar Villanueva is a Native American who rose from humble beginnings to serve at senior levels in philanthropy, giving away tens of millions of dollars through foundations. He is an activist and an expert on the intersection of race, wealth, and philanthropy. He's the founder and principal of Decolonizing Wealth Project and Liberated Capital, which use education, radical reparative giving, and narrative change to disrupt the existing systems of moving and controlling capital. Villanueva also advises a range of organizations, including national and global philanthropies, Fortune 500 companies, and entertainment and media firms on social impact strategies to advance racial equity from within and through their investments. He just revised and published his best-selling book, Decolonizing Wealth, Indigenous Wisdom to Heal Divides and Restore Balance, which we'll discuss with him now. Edgar Villanueva, welcome to All Together Now. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I am very excited about this conversation because I love the depth of which you've thought about money and your lived experience and working with it. And you've got some very creative ideas about how to move forward and using money as a healing means um, within the framework of your kind of Native American perspective. I, I think it's very exciting. Uh, so I look forward to the conversation. I want to give you a chance to kind of put forward your point of view or your argument, what you think needs to be done. And I'm going to then follow up with a series of questions to kind of push you a little bit, maybe challenge you a little bit about some of your views with an eye towards evolving and developing what we need to do going forward to help restore balance to the world. So um, let's start off with this can you just say briefly for our listeners why did you write this book i wrote this book um the first edition that came out in 2018 um really it felt like an act of obedience to my ancestors and um i had this nagging sensation um that um i i needed to to just put pen to paper and get this, this thing out of my heart that I was carrying around for so long. And it was essentially um, a collection of stories of my own experiences being who I am as a native American, a person from the South um, working in this industry of philanthropy that is a, um, you know, $1 trillion industry in the United States. It does a lot of great work. But there are a lot of things I saw from the inside of that particular industry around how money and power were operating that I felt like needed to be called out. And I um, personally just kind of experienced a lot of heartache around some of the work that I was trying to do. And I realized that my experiences were not just mine, but I had collected stories from 
from many folks who have worked in this industry, as well as nonprofit leaders who interact with philanthropy and have to, um, you know, uh, tolerate the power dynamics at, at play there. So I, I wanted to um, kind of write a love letter to the industry that that I love and have spent, you know, many, many years in, um, but also calling us to a better place. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there's a role for philanthropy to support racial healing in our communities. And we have only begun to just scratch the surface to, to be able to support that work. And um, I'm hoping that this will help move us forward. Well said. And I love that you call it a love letter to philanthropy because I'm not so sure people in philanthropy would feel it was a love letter. <laughs> Maybe this is what we need to do to save this marriage. <laughs> right. so, yeah, I know. Totally. You've got a, a actually a very harsh critique of uh, the field. And um, you say it's an industry, even though the name uh, philanthropy stands for the love of humankind. And by the way, for listeners who don't know, philanthropy is basically the field of giving away money. And um, that's what foundations do, corporate foundations or private foundations. Um, so even though it's supposed to do that, uh, give away for the love of, of humankind, you actually say it does more harm than good. So I can see where you'd say there's problems with it, but really more harm than good. What do you see is wrong with philanthropy that needs to change? You know, I, um, I'll throw out just a little, a few numbers at you to help folks understand um, kind of what's at play. Um, I mentioned that this sector um, represents $1 trillion of, of capital that either people with wealth, individuals or families with wealth or corporations have put into uh, different financial vehicles, um, including foundations, including what's called donor advised funds that are held at financial institutions. And these corporations and families um, or people get uh, significant tax breaks for, for contributing this money there, right? So um, that's, that's not altogether a bad thing. I support that. Um, but um, many of these corporations and a lot of these folks also do not pay their fair share of taxes. And so you have to imagine this is money that would have potentially gone into the public coffers to be used for education, um, health care, transportation, you know, to support safety net services and so forth and so on. Um, however, we have this loophole in this country that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world where you can kind of opt out of paying into that system to create your own system of, um, of a foundation or a donor advised fund. Um, so when we look at that $1 trillion then and what's happening with that money, um, we know that the vast majority of that money actually is invested in private markets. So um, when you start a private foundation, you're only required to actually pay out 5% of that money to nonprofits in general. Um, donor advised funds require no payout. So I could, I could put a million dollars in a donor advised fund and that money never see the light of day. And I still get uh, a tax write-off even though there may be no public benefit to the, that contribution. So that's one of the problems. The other big problem where philanthropy is potentially harming communities um, is um, where and how those resources are invested in private markets. When we look at the endowments of foundations and how and where they're invested, we know that the vast majority of those resources 
are actually invested in harmful and extractive industries. So what we have here are many, many, many examples of, of, of foundations, for example, that may be funding criminal justice reform and supporting nonprofits doing that work, kind of doing good with one hand, but that same organization has an endowment that might be invested in private prisons that's just canceling out the good that they're doing with their grant making. And so there's a lot of things there that, that lead me to ask or, or, you know, question the net value of philanthropy if some of the resources are potentially harming and, um, and most of the resources are harming more than um, are doing good. I'm so glad you raised this question about the of the assets in foundations that are invested in usually the stock market is some kind of a a investment like that. Whereas there's only 5% a year, it's supposed to be the minimum payout, but a lot of foundations seem to take that as the guideline and the ceiling as well as the floor. And I've actually, I'm so happy you raised it in your book because it struck me years ago and I I did strategic planning for the National Committee for Responsive Philanthropy, which was trying to get more money into communities of color for women, indigenous, so forth. Um, And when I did the strategic plan, I thought there is a trillion dollars here 95% of what they're actually doing is around these investments, but all the attention, like 100% of the attention is around the 5% that they give away. Like, how is it given? Who is it given? Who do you have to, you know, coddle up to to make sure you get some of that 5%? Like, wait a minute, (laughs) 95% of it. And you talk about uh, foundations which are with their 5% funding groups working to address climate change, but then out of the 95%, they're investing in the fossil fuel company. So right. I thought it would be enormously embarrassing to uh, investigate what that investment portfolio looks like for a lot of foundations are very vulnerable on that. I thought about doing it not to embarrass them, but to say, look, here's what your portfolio is not matching your stated values or your mission. And if this gets exposed, it will be embarrassing. So please shape it up. You know, how many foundations do you think roughly percentage wise have their investments aligned with their mission values? I mean, I can only think of a handful out of the hundreds of foundations you know, there's there's a couple that come to mind that have um, been very intentional and, and are leading the way to be 100% mission aligned. You know, it, it's really, really um, tricky because I think the incentives um, in the financial industry, you know, which really includes philanthropy, are um, really counterintuitive to doing the right thing. <laughs> and um, we in philanthropy are slightly um, obsessed with the size of our endowments and generating more wealth. Um, Foundations are often uh, not wanting to have conversations about, you know, whether or not they should spend down or be in perpetuity. Um, And there's this sort of excuse that is given around the investment part that we need to generate more wealth for future years of supporting communities, you know, for future years of grant making, um, which is a little naive to, to, um, to assume there will not be wealth in the future and to, um, to just be values neutral around how that wealth is being used. Um, but yeah, it's quite a challenge. Yeah. So good for you for raising some of these possibilities because every critique you offer 
is an avenue for action to help make a better world. So I'm not sure foundations always see it that way, but that is what you're doing. I think that's a real gift. Um, you talk about money should be a tool of love, which I really appreciate, which uh, talk a little bit about how you see that could happen. You know, it's it's really interesting. At one point in my career, I sort of had this moment um, where I wondered if working in and around money was an okay place for me because I was sort of raised under this idea um, that that money was evil. And people misquoted that scripture in the Bible that says the love of money is a root of all evil. Um, and there's 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 a lot of ways that when you think about how wealth has been accumulated historically, um, it has been very harmful and, and even, you know, um, traumatic for communities when you think about our history of, of slavery in the U.S. and genocide and, and the taking of land and all of these different um, dark moments in our history that have really led to um, concentrating wealth in, um, in certain communities. And then beyond those sort of violent um, parts of our history, we have so many intentional policies through the years that have um, created accumulated benefits for some and accumulated disadvantages for others. And so um, when I had this moment thinking about money and if, if I could actually be useful to the world or of service to the world in this industry, I kind of got to this point where I realized that it's not really about the money, right? Because money is really neutral. It's, it's a proxy for, for something that um, represents value, but it's really us as people, humans who gave money its power, who have used uh, money or allowed money and the hoarding of it to um, harm people. And so I just really wanted to flip that on, on, its, on its head to say, if we as humans have used money to harm, can we um, use money to repair or to help heal? And I do believe that we can, if we are um, really focusing on how we're using our money um, and bringing a racial justice lens um, and prioritizing those communities who have not had access to opportunities to build wealth, you know, really reparations is kind of a, what we're talking about here, then we're helping to heal. We can't undo what's happened over history, 500 years of colonization in this country, but we can be very intentional about how we redistribute resources um, in an effort to um, bring about some some equity um, in terms of this this race wealth gap that exists in our country. Exactly right. And I should say, you know, I see your critique on philanthropy. It's not just about the field of foundations, although that's central. What you're really talking about is a whole critique of the economy the economic system. And that we're not just talking about funders who donate through foundations. We're talking about all of us who use money. Um, I, and I, when seen from that broader lens, I think your book is an exciting kind of series of guideposts of how to rethink money, how to re, uh, rethink our economic system, how to rethink how we relate to money and how we use it and do we use it for uh you know how what do we use it for are we using it to harm and to use to increase our own individual power or are we using it to heal and bring uh really the world back into some 
semblance of balance. So what would you say to our listeners? You know, most people don't have their own foundation, although I know some of our listeners do. But uh, for the average person, what what could they do around money that could help move towards healing and balance? Yeah, great question. You know, I, I think the decisions we make around every dollar we spend really can um, can are our decisions, and they can help advance healing and justice in the world if we're really intentional. You know, for me, I think it's um, you know thinking about where we bank and where we choose to bank, and are are we working with financial institutions that align with our values or? Um, are we choosing to bank um, it, with corporations that are actively harming communities? Um, so that that's that's like a, a, a something that is really easy to think about. It's also who we choose to do business with and where we spend our money. It's not very hard to um, do just an extra step to say, you know, I want to I want to shop at businesses as much as possible that are owned by uh, people of color, by women. Um, I want to, uh, you know, we all shop <laughs> um, and, you know, supporting, um, you know, folks and helping for that, that haven't had wealth historically to build wealth is really, um, you know, I think a, a small act of justice. It's also if you have retirement funds, um, being aware of how your your funds are invested and what you're invested in with your with your funds. Um, you can talk to your um, your financial advisors and um, companies that are um, managing retirement funds and ask these questions like what industries am, am I invested in? Am I invested in industries that are hurting, um, you know, the environment and the climate or contributing to, um, you know, um, uh, mass incarceration, those types of things and, and requests because the default is to put the money in investments that are going to generate um, income regardless of what those types of industries are. And so you have to specifically um, request and demand that your retirement funds are, are invested in a way that aligns with your values. So there's are a couple ways. And then in your own charity, you know, you know, we're, we're all philanthropists here. We, we give to family, we give to um, maybe our faith communities or uh, to our schools. It's looking at at the end of the year when you go to write those checks, are you being inclusive there? Are you also supporting organizations, nonprofits that are working to support, um, you know, communities of color that are led by folks from those communities? And if not, identify at least one nonprofit in your community that's working on issues of racial justice for black people or for indigenous folks and um, add them to your list. Even if it's just a $25 gift, um, those those gifts add up and really matter to folks doing the work. Exactly. And, you know, money is energy, too. And it's like whether you give twenty five hundred or twenty five million, that spirit with which you're giving really matters. Um, so we can all do something there. And, you know, you are, of course, Native American. You tell a great story in your book. This is when I fell in love with you, Edgar, when you told the story about getting your Native American name. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a great story. Um, it was just such an honest expression of the reality you're experiencing. And is this man like crazy and trying to take us all in? Or is he really kind of clued in and a shaman and connecting me with my ancestors and holding both those thoughts simultaneously? I thought it was deeply honest, but um, 
I, I don't want to go into the book now about that story. I want to encourage our listeners, get the book just to read that story is worth the book. <laughs> so uh, decolonizing well. But I do want to speak to the name that you received, um, Leading Bird. And you say that the issue, it's not about um, for us to thrive. It's not about focusing on the leader, but the whole flock. Could you talk a little bit about your native name, Leading Bird, and what it means to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's probably also one of my my favorite stories in the book, too. Quite a quite an experience for me. But um, the name uh, Nagani Benashe or Leading Bird, um, when I was given that name, um, because I'm not fluent in a Ojibwe language, I was, you know, asked questions. I was like, well, what kind of bird? Cause in my mind, I'm like, oh, am I a big, powerful eagle or what? <laughs> and um, as I learned more about uh, uh, Nagani Vinashe, it actually um, refers to birds that, that are flying um, in a V formation. And um, so I began to just kind of read and think about what it meant to be that type of leader. You know, we can learn so much from nature. And this is also just in a very sort of indigenous way to be. It's an indigenous worldview um, where we're not so focused on the individual, whether we're talking about building wealth or just in our leadership, but we are thinking about the collective. You know, I think that uh, that name, um, when we think about birds flying in a bee formation um, or kind of applying leadership to that concept, it's a leader that is really in tune with the, with folks um, who are around and um, understanding that that coexistence that is um, so inherent and necessary for us all to um, to thrive. It's a leader or a person that makes space for the brilliance of others, not feeling like we always have, um, you know, the answer or that um, it, it's, it's really being open and, and having humility and trust and just being really flexible and attuned um, and believing that everyone has the potential to lead when you when you. Um, read more. I could talk about these birds all day. I kind of went into like a, a internet, um, you know, black hole reading about them. But um, one thing that I learned was that um, they kind of switch in position. So the bird that's out front, when they get tired, they kind of move around and push another bird to the front. And so we don't always have to be out front. Um, we can we can lead from wherever we are um, in in small and subtle ways. But it's just being just being aware of those around us and and open and supportive and understanding that we are all related inherently. We're very codependent on each other as human beings, and we're very dependent on this planet and making decisions every day that um, really um, align with that reality. That's great. And um, by the way, our, for those watching on YouTube, you'll see the cover I'm holding up right now of this great book, uh, Decolonizing Well. I love the cover uh, because you've got the leading bird that you talk about they're kind of at this intersection between the four directions on the Native American uh, kind of cycle of life there in the middle of these modern buildings. And um, it just such a great depiction of you as a bridge builder between the Native American understanding and the way the world is right now. And we absolutely need to have uh, bridge builders like you. So um, you describe in your book uh, 
Seven Steps to Healing, which you actually take the reader and and I would assume the organizations you're working with on a whole process for how do we heal from this colonization that's kind of infected all of us, whether you're in the haves or the haves not, you're kind of got this colonial mentality, uh, which is holding everybody back in a way. So not to go into all seven now, again, I direct the readers to your wonderful book to learn more, but what would you say are you know, maybe the top two or three things someone needs to do who really wants to heal themselves and then help bring healing into the world. Yeah, you know, de- decolonizing, which which is a a word that can mean a lot of things, but for me, it really it means healing. It's understanding, as you said, that we have been living in a colonized state. From you know, we actually don't know any other way because it's been that way for for many many years and that there is trauma as a result of sort of that mindset of colonization that is about extraction that is about the individual you know some of the ideas that we equate to being like the american way right that we're proud of um, are actually um, kind of more aligned with with the individualistic kind of colonized way of being that um, i think we're beginning to see are not serving us well. We're a young country, um, you know, about to be 250 years old. And um, we have a lot of problems and a lot of things that are broken in our in our communities that um, I think are just connected to this force of, um, you know, um, harming and extracting and hoarding and fear and greed. So the way that we heal from that um, and, you know, through the seven steps, they're really uh steeped in indigenous worldview and sort of the ideas of restorative justice and really um, helping us think through there is individual work to do, but there's also a collective healing process that we we can and must do together as a country. And it starts by kind of first identifying that there's a problem. The first step is about grieving, because when we really come to terms with the reality of what has happened in our nation, what has happened in our communities, what's broken, it's actually um, really sad. And stepping into that sadness and, and having a grieving process is a critical part of healing. We in the United States um, are really the only uh, one of the few countries that have not had um, a process of truth and reconciliation um, for grievances um, that have happened here. You know, we we've never really had official apologies um, from from the government for, um, you know, the history of slavery um, for for genocide. We're hearing stories right now about the bodies of Native American children being found at um, the boarding schools in Canada and the U.S. There's there's not been a, an apology or even really a chance to grieve. Yet we're doing quite the opposite in America. We're actually erasing and changing history to to serve, um, you know, white supremacy. Um, you know, critical race theory is under debate right now in this country. And, and I think it's very intentional that there are folks who do not want to teach um, history or to, to grieve our history, um, which is really an, an, a missed opportunity for, for healing. Um, and I'm not a person who wants to dwell on the bad things and the sad things all the time. I'm, I really want to move forward uh, together in this country. But I know that to heal, we have to diagnose what's wrong. We have to be honest about what's broken and how we got here so that we can have um, a new reality. We can make new laws that are more fair. We can um, 
we can learn to uh you know have respect for each other we don't have to all agree but we can definitely learn to respect and support ideas of equity and true equality but we won't get there when we refuse to acknowledge the history so that's the first part that doesn't sound like a fun journey uh, or a fun way to begin a journey but it it is very liberating to to step into the truth and this is work i'll say the last part here um i spoke about it sort of at a, a national level this is also work that can happen right in our families because even in our families there's pain sometimes there's there's trauma there are things that have occurred that we just don't want to talk about and and so we allow that those wounds to kind of fester under the surface and we we carry around that that weight and that burden and that pain um, when we actually can, you know, begin a process to uh, name what has happened and acknowledge it and think about ways to heal. So, um, you know, we need healing all the way around from individual uh, lives and families to communities to, to nationally and globally. So. Right. Uh, well said. And, you know, I know a lot of times people, particularly Americans, I think, want to jump to, well, what's the solution? What do we do? without taking that step to acknowledge kind of what's happened here you know you mentioned like genocide slavery there's some deep harms that have been caused and just trying to say okay well we're all one human family let's everybody get along it kind of skips over some key steps the way i think about it uh and you're a much more developed program here with your seven steps but i keep it very for me very simple when there's been harm done you need to first of all acknowledge that the harm's been done second of all apologize that you caused harm and third you make amends mm -hmm. and uh so to me it's the three a's acknowledge apologize and amend i try to raise my daughter that way and uh i think if you can carry that and live that then you can help heal things as you move through life so uh, you know obviously there's things as a nation we need to acknowledge and apologize for i mean i would and make amends for i uh, i love the idea of truth and reconciliation um you know i watched in awe as south africa had their truth and reconciliation mm -hmm experience which was i think it prevented mass slaughter mm -hmm. of the whites by the blacks when the blacks took over because there was that healing process but i was kind of disappointed and surprised we haven't had one in the united states yet but i think it's maybe reflective of the resistance that you're talking about substantial numbers of people don't want to do that but i think just you know at a spiritual level you have to address the harm and apologize and amend before you can move on. So we will have this problem of racism and its multiple nefarious forms until we acknowledge, apologize and amend. So um, we have a lot of work to do there. Uh, I do want to say, though, having, you know, obviously agreeing with you completely on all that, um, that there is a feeling you know from a lot of uh americans now it's like well my ancestors weren't slave owners you know my ancestors you know i i take myself as an example not that i'm saying this but i've heard this argument so often it's like okay so i'm irish and none of the irish 
were slave owners. In fact, some of the Irish, you go back far enough, were slaves. The patron saint of Ireland, St. Patrick, was a slave, and he escaped and went to Ireland and became very involved in leading the Catholic Church there. But um, so the Irish, you know, we came here, we had a lot of struggle. Uh, we were hated. We were looked at as despicable scum. Uh, there were signs, no Irish need apply. Uh, so, uh, so then what do I do as a descendant from that line of the Irish? Like, how do I relate as a white person coming from the Irish ancestry relate to the fact that so many other whites were involved in the slaveholding? How do you respond to, to that concern? Yeah, I love that example because, you know, when we when we even think about whiteness and what white means, you know, race is a construct, right? And this this thing that was created to um, create uh, really sort of a, a racial caste system and uh, th- that goes back to power and money um, and um, preventing some folks from having it and trying to hoard those resources with one group. And the definition of who is white has changed through the years to accommodate the sort of the ruling class, right? So when you look at history, you'll see as you were sharing that at one point, Irish folks were not even considered to be white. And um, that, you know, (laughs) so the definition has definitely changed to accommodate those in power. You know, I think that um, what what I think about when I read about things that have happened historically and and, and just globally. Um, It's just a bunch of hurt people hurting other people. (laughs) Right. It was slavery or, you know, white people have have been, you know, hurting other white people historically. And some folks say before the colonizers came to the U.S. that they were, you know, had already practiced that on each other, um, that type of violence. So, um, you know, and even in within my community, you know, um, all five, you know, 574 plus tribes on this land. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, we didn't always get along historically before before there was uh, the colonizers here. So there's just uh, it, it's it's really um, an, an ideology or a, a mindset that is sort of passed down to us to that that's sort of baked into the way we, we are. Whether we are descendants of slave owners or not, we are, we're all participating in sort of this capitalist system that um, really breeds these ideas of of fear and scarcity mindsets that cause us to, um, you know, dehumanize others at times to um, to to um, in order to to hoard wealth. And we have to acknowledge that um, anti-Black racism is a global phenomenon. And regardless of the terminologies in which boxes we fall in, you know, I I have benefited by from light skin privilege that I, you know, have to acknowledge that. Um, And so race is a construct that was made up to, um, you know, hoard power and resources, but very real policies and benefits and disadvantages um, are associated with with this this thing that we made up. It's white supremacy is like the the most successful propaganda campaign of all times. It is just it is just something that. that is such a pervasive narrative and mindset that we have to, it's going to take all of us coming together to, to defeat it. So we all have to be in, we've inherited this mess together. We're all here now. 
Um, and it's up to all of us to say, okay, you know, we've got to change this once and for all. We have to, we have to name that white supremacy is operationalized and operating all around us. It may not be as, um, visible and, and notable as slavery and those types of acts, but it's still happening. And, um, it's causing so much harm for everyone, including white people. Exactly right. And, you know, we've seen the neo-Nazis marching through the streets of the United States. I mean, my father, if he had been alive, would have a heart attack. I mean, he fought in World War II to stop the Nazis. And here they are parading around and coming out from under their rocks now. Like, whoa. So uh, definitely need to address this white supremacy mindset. Um, I wanted to... uh, uh, address an issue you raise in the book, there's sort of an implication that all wealth comes from theft or exploitation. And I can see that kind of from your point of view as a Native American, like all the land here was taken from Native Americans, except that which is now reservation. So anybody who now owns property is kind of benefiting in some way from, uh, from that history. Um, but at the same time, it seems to me there that not all wealth comes from theft or exploitation. I can think of, I have some very wealthy friends or people that I know, um, like Brendan Burchard, for example, who's, he's a white man. He's like the world's greatest trainer. And, um, he helps people navigate the web and figure out programs based on what their gifts that they want to share, their wisdom, their program, and helps them get on the Internet and share that with other people and make money from doing it. And to me, that's like win, win, win. Um, or uh, other people I know are authors who write books and then they make significant, very few of them, but some I know have made millions of dollars from their books. And that's like, that's their creative product. The, uh, they make money from it. The publisher makes money from it. The people willingly spend the money to buy the book. So do you really think that all wealth comes from theft or exploitation? Or do you think there's some exemptions like that? Um, I think that we have come to be the wealthiest country in the world based largely on um, a history of exploitation and, you know, our economic system was, you know, built off of the slave trade industry. So I think, you know, historically um, as wealth has accumulated, there is a history that, that, that undergirds um, wealth um, that is based on extraction. Um, I don't think that, um, One, I want to say, I don't think that having wealth is a bad thing. Some people think I'm anti-wealth. I want wealth and I, um, I just want everyone to have it. I think in indigenous communities, it's a, um, you know, we used to have traditions called potlatch ceremony that I write about in the book, which was really about, um, you know, sort of a a great characteristic of a leader at that time would be, um, you know, to amass enough for everyone around and then to um, share and give away the excess of their harvest. And that was called a potlatch ceremony. 
and you were esteemed as a great leader, depending on how many potlat ceremonies you had. And so it's, you know, I think making money is definitely not a bad thing. Um, it's, it's what we're doing with it. Are we, are we hoarding those resources or are we um, really contributing to changing the system that allows so few of us to be able to make money, right? Because poverty um, is the product of a public policy, and it is the product of theft that has been extracted. But, you know, maybe, uh, you know, public policy is, is something that has benefited um, lots of folks who are making money in, in good ways, but they have to acknowledge that they've benefited from living within a system that has been rigged in their favor. Um, if you are um, a white man and you're doing really good things and you're making money in a way that's not harming anyone, you have still had um, advantages by your race and gender that gender that have been afforded to you by being born in, in this country um, into a system that privileges that. And it's not to say, you know, of course, we can point to, to many black folks that have earned money and are outliers and you know this this country is a place where there are lots of opportunities but there are also systemic barriers and a history behind um, those barriers that make it just extra hard um, for some and so um, to get to a place of building wealth you know i think about my community indigenous communities Apple computers has been around longer than our uh, right to vote. And, you know, the boarding school era just ended in the 1990s in the states, the 80s. And so, um, you know, we, the, these acts of violence are, are very recent in my community. Um, I actually know little to no wealthy Native Americans. People ask me sometimes, oh, I want to talk to a Native American philanthropist and, you know, who is, you know, uh, giving, um, you know, away like millions of dollars and, you know, cause they're studying like philanthropy of uh, people of color and how we give or whatever. And like, I actually don't know anyone that is, has that type of generational wealth. Um, I'm making great money, um, and doing so in a, in a way that is, um, you know, good. Right. But I am not going to have an inheritance. Um, I don't own a home. I just helped my mom buy a home. And so we're starting from a very different place of, of not having the friends and family network to start businesses or to help seed our businesses. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's a system that is, that's, that's unfair and rigged in favor of others. So even if you're a, a great person, you have to acknowledge that, um, you have had some some benefits by being, um, you know, if you're a white person or male, there, the system has been rigged to um, make it a little easier for you to, to be successful. Yeah, all true. And um, thank you for that. So it is definitely true, you know, as, as white people, we have advantages coming out, even though like I came from a poor family, but then I got a scholarship to Yale and boom, that was kind of my doorway into a better world. But um, it's also true that most poor people are actually white. So, and I remember listening to Jesse Jackson in the 1980s say, we have to whiten the face of poverty in the sense that, People, when you think of a poor person, the image in your mind is generally, you know, some black person. But uh, because that's what Republicans have been pounding into us. But the actual, if you look at the numbers, most of the people who are poor in this country are white. And I think that is a point where when you say, yes, you know, 
whites have a certain white privilege. Yes, we do. And not all white people have benefited from it. Um, there's a lot that are still left behind. And I think there's a real tension there where you want, on the one hand, acknowledge the advantages you could have in our society because you're white, but at the same time acknowledge not everybody who's white is doing well. And I think that is part of what gave rise to Donald Trump, uh, which scared the bejesus out of me. And uh, I know you write in the book about your depression about like, like I busted tail in 2016 to try to get Hillary in and keep him out. And I was just aghast that this kind that that many people would actually vote for this character. So how how do you deal with that tension of, yes, on the one hand, you want to acknowledge advantages to being white, but at the same time, you don't want to say, well, white privilege is like if you're white, you, you got it on Evie Street because so many people who struggle financially are, are and have poverty are white. Yeah, and that's, that's such a great point. I think, um, you know, and it's 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 sort of the um, the political savvy of the Trump administration to engage and rally that that base of um, you know a lot of working class or, or poor white folks was is a is a tale as old as time. You know, to um, tr- sort of pit communities against each other, and um, you know, I I hope that folks can understand that. Um, regardless of our race, like we are all a part of and kind of working inside of this economy that is uh, continues to privilege so few people, right? The way things are structured, we're, we're all helping someone else get rich. <laughs> um, and we, um, we have to figure out how to reach those folks uh, who continue to vote for, for folks who are not acting on their behalf, right? And um, I know in this last election, I had a few white friends who left New York City and moved back to their home communities in Kentucky and other places to try to organize and um, and engage that base to to understand um, that, uh, you know, that the, the Trump agenda, for lack of a better word right now, um, it, it's not the path to um you know, to, to economic stability for so many folks, but it's, it's hard. I think those of us who are progressive have to um, learn to translate our message, um, you know, to, we talk to each other in circles often. We've got to reach folks like that um, and, and find a way to, to bring them into understanding um, politically how to use their power to pull themselves out of poverty in my own community, being Native American, my tribe is in the South from North Carolina, and um, a great bit of my uh, tribe um, supported the conservative agenda. And that that's kind of surprising for folks as well. But yeah. the same thing rings true. These are poor folks who um, only are thinking about um, work and, and making sure they have what they need to take care of their families. And there was something in, d- in the delivery of that particular campaign that resonated um, and, and brought um, an idea or a promise that they would have access to work in a better way um, that we on the progressive side um, kind of failed. We kind of failed. We, um, you know, to to bring that to the conversation for folks. So my community, which historically has always voted um, blue for many, many years, 
um, decades, in fact, and uh, for the first time with a and with a Trump campaign, the first campaign went red um, because I think they uh, economically have been oppressed and, and bought into that idea that um, he was the successful businessman who was going to make all these jobs and support all these jobs coming to our community. So, so it's really really tough. It is a really tough issue and. You know, it's it is uh, race is still a factor in there. And I think for a lot of poor white people, because they may not have money, um, they may lean into their whiteness as a source of power. Right. And say, well, we've got to organize and um, and, you know, fight for what's ours. And um, there's mindsets that they see, you know, immigrants and others, you know, getting help or receiving money while they while they still suffer. And. Um, that type of pitting communities against each other is absolutely a strategy of those in power. So um, we got to find ways to come together and and work together to change um, these these issues in our community so that we can all thrive together. Yeah, and I love that. And I, I, I love your whole approach about not really demonizing people. I mean, you're acutely aware of the history and and the present, what's happening. Um, and at the same time, you create a welcoming, loving space for everyone to come in. And um, I get worried on the progressive side of things. Of course, we know how stratified wealth is. And it's really the top 1% is like the vacuum cleaner sucking up the huge amount of the resources. And I have friends who are in the top 1%. And they're wonderful people. And people I know who are extremely successful, um, they either inherited the wealth or they made the wealth through business or some combination. And they want other people to succeed. They're not like they're not racist. They're not thinking, oh, I'm I'm great. I'm egotistical. I'm better than everybody because I have money. They're like. This is great. It's like you said, I want everyone to be wealthy. Right, right. I want everyone to be prosperous. And they do, too. So I am so grateful that you don't demonize because I think when you create a welcoming space, that's where we can all really come together and heal together. So so thank you for that. Yeah, you know, it's we're living in a time now where we, you know, with identity politics and cancel culture that. Um, folks are uh, really quick to to point fingers and blame. And, you know, like you said, I, I know a lot of folks um, who um, come from different backgrounds, who have resources who are, or whatever, who are, are really well-intentioned. We're, we're born who we are. No one chose to be their race, color, or gender. Uh, we're born into the families that we're born into. We have no control over that. And it really is... Um, you know, I, I hope and I strive every day to have grace for others because I uh, was raised in a very different politic than I have now. And I've been able to learn and grow and evolve. And so I have a lot of compassion for uh, for others that um, may not have had the opportunity yet to, to be enlightened. And I know that um, they're only going to come over to my way of seeing the world if, if I if I love them and I create a welcoming space. Um, to at least get folks to listen to my point of view to potentially shift a harder our mind um, to a different direction. Yeah. So th- thank you for that. And um, and I think it is part of this whole Native American focus on connection and belonging. 
And uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, wealthy, poor, everything in between are feeling disconnected. You know, they're, they feel like they're in an out group for whatever reason. But it's like almost everybody feels like they're in an out group. <laughs> And now even white males are feeling like they're in an outgroup because Black Lives Matter and it's the rise of the people of color. So they're the bad guys and they're feeling like the outgroup. So um, I uh, encourage and applaud your wonderful approach about um, bringing everybody in. And you have this great quote in your book, we are not a healthy community unless we're taking care of Everybody, and I mean all our relations inside and outside our tribes. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, it, it is, we have to be in, inclusive in everything that we're trying to do in our communities and um, leave leave no one out. And there, there are times where we absolutely have to prioritize certain communities. And, you know, when I'm thinking about the movement for black lives and um, its work over the past year or or a couple years, you know, this was a direct response to um, just escalating murders of of innocent black people that needed to be called out. And so um, I, I believe, you know, that acknowledging Black Lives Matter does not mean that we're saying that other lives don't matter. Right. And um, but it is um, there are times we have to have specific conversations around what's happening to groups and be in deep solidarity and also just have um, an understanding that at times there are very painful things happening to certain groups. And um, there's a time there, there is a time to fight. <laughs> um, I'm full of love and I want to be at the table with, with everyone. But there are times where if my community is under direct threat um, in a situation or being actively harmed, that um, you get into a get into a you know a situation that is that is, that that might may be a fight. So um, the uh, more productive way, I hope um, that more and more we can make space at the table. We can all come together to really listen um, and to understand each other's perspectives and to dispel our preconceived notions about each other um, and find ways to tap into our common humanity. At the end of the day everybody has experienced pain and hurt and loss and we're all um you know uh, trying to take care of our families and and so it's 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 really about um finding the humanity in every person and i you know i i wonder if there at times there you know there there are days i will say where i don't feel that love i don't feel warm and fuzzy for for whoever i might be in a room with um but i strive to i try to at least um find the the humanity the the laugh the the, the common thread that we that we share um and um, the world is a so full of contradictions and so so complex and the least we can do is, is just really try to find that respect, but also that radical solidarity where, you know, today it may be a fight against a certain group that I need to support because tomorrow it may be my group, right. That's under attack. Um, so um, as we said, historically it's, it's, it's changed. And um, so I, I know that by being there and in solidarity for others, like black lives, I'm actually contributing to my own freedom and liberation um, because I'm inherently connected to that community as well. 
Yeah, beautifully said. And I love your focus on solutions, too. By the way, you, you'd enjoy a book I wrote called Breakthrough Solutions, How to Improve Your Life and Change the World by Building on What Works. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that there, we have so many solutions out there. Uh, we want to build on those. And you call on foundations and funders to find those solutions, fund them, look not only at what's broken, but what's working well that we can amplify and um, and build on more. So, um, and your book, by the way, is full of great stories of people responding to your call to decolonize well. And uh, I, again, it's so rich. I want to encourage our listeners, read the book, Decolonizing Wealth, and uh be inspired by the great work that's going on uh, for acknowledging and healing um, our past and our present, our future, working together for everyone, healing and belonging. Uh, so, Edgar, just before we sign off, how can people learn more about your work besides reading your book? Sure. You can check out our website, decolonizingwealth.com. I'm on social media at Villanueva Edgar on IG and Twitter, and we invite everyone to check it out. We um, we have a community um, fund called Liberated Capital as well, where individuals can join um, at any given level to be a part of a community that's supporting indigenous and black communities in the United States. And we come together and hang out and have really deep conversations about healing and money and Um, You know, it's a really fun community. So I invite folks who may be interested to go to the website and check it out. Good. Well, I'm going to sign up. I want to go. That sounds like a great conversation. (laughs) (laughs) That's all the time we have. Uh, Edgar Villanueva, offer of decolonizing wealth. Thank you so much for being with us today and for all your important work. Thank you, Eleanor. I appreciate it. For our listeners, in case you've missed any of our programs, you can listen to them in the archives. If you like this program, please go to iTunes and like it there. Our theme song is Let's Give Them Something to Talk About, sung by Bonnie Raitt. I'll be back one week from today. Thanks for joining us. This is Eleanor Lacane with All Together Now. <laughs>